everybody, and welcome back to another episode of Unwise Girls. I'm your host, Jacqueline. And I'm your other host, Jane. And we're your favorite podcast, all about the books of Rick Riordan. Today, now that we've finally finished The Son of Neptune, we're starting the next book in the Grand Saga, <laughs> The Demigod Diaries. No, you thought, you thought I was going to say Mark of Athena, but no, we're doing The Demigod Diaries. I mean, they'll think that you meant Mark of Athena if they skipped last episode. Yeah, if you're like, eh, I, I get what their opinions are by now. I don't really need to hear the last episode. <laughs> I feel like Son of Neptune fans may have skipped the last episode, to be honest. <laughs> uh, that's fair. Hi, Jane. How you doing? Oh, I'm I'm doing just fine. I've been engaging in, in my zen most of the day. Your zen? The just absolutely sublime experience of uh, peeling shitty color correcting stickers off of Gumpla uh, and then painting over the details yourself. Yes. Truly nothing can compare. That's the good shit. <laughs> How are I, you, Jacqueline? I'm doing okay. I got my uh, my COVID booster and my flu shot last night. Oh. How are you holding up? Um, I was doing pretty bad all day, but now I'm feeling oh, no. much better in time for the podcast. Nice. I, do we want to talk about the fucking news before we get into this? I, I think we need to. We addressed it on the bonus show, but it, it would be irresponsible of a Percy Jackson podcast to not talk about this on the main show. This news broke while we were recording the bonus episode. <laughs> Jane, I'll give you the honor. Oh, uh, so we we learned that um, that in in typical Rick Riordan style, with the sweet comes the sour, the sugar, f- the the poison for our sugar of the Disney Plus series, which will probably be all right. Uh, which is that Hermes will be played by uh, international rap sensation Lin Manuel Miranda. It's, and I've prepared a special freestyle rap. <laughs> no. Uh, just no i haven't wait you can't prepare a freestyle rap you can prepare a little bit i think there's like degrees like you can prepare a little bit for a freestyle rap uh-huh i get yeah i guess if you like pick out the music or something the the thing people don't tell you about freestyle rapping is that people just reuse their same lines that like they just like oh i thought of this line like three years ago i had to use that in a song i used it in a different freestyle it happens constantly Oh, it's like stand-up comedy where, like, different shows will have, like, different reused bits and jokes in them. Basically. To me, this is what... I, I, I'm i not a freestyle rap expert. I I shouldn't be. <laughs> but... I, I'm willing to go out on a limb here. I'm going to guess that most of your knowledge of rap comes from Homestuck, which is a bad place to draw rap knowledge from. No! <laughs> <laughs> That's not... that. Maybe that used to be true back in the day. Um, no, that's like kind of true, actually. There was not like actually true anymore. But like back in the day, there was all sorts of like fan Dave tracks, just like people doing the oh, Dave no. stuff. Yeah. Um, but this isn't the bonus episode where we talk about Homestuck. This is this is the Demigod Diaries. This is the, De- the Demigod Diaries, which kind of kind of blew my expectations out of the water yeah kind of owns just kind of like yeah. hits on all cylinders it's kind of maybe the best ride and verse thing we've read since last olympian i'm, I'm willing to say that that might be true <laughs> just like in in terms of like consistent quality i think so 
And it's strange because, like, Demigod Files wasn't bad, but it kind of had the vibe of, like, Rick was told that he had to write some stuff for a Scholastic Book Fair, so he did that. Yeah. Whereas these are, like, actual good short stories. Yeah, it's like if someone was like, oh, write a short story collection in this world. Like, that's that's what this feels mm-hmm. like. And it's really, it, it's good. Um, do we want to, like, give a... Cause we, so we did the Demigod Files previously on this. Uh, that uh-huh. was... There were some word searches, some some games, some pictures of the characters, and a couple of couple of little stories. That's where we met uh, the fucking what was it? The the big silly guy. The big silly guy. The big silly guy in Hades. Oh yeah, Bob. Yeah, Bob. That Bob? That's right. Titan Bob, who we never saw again. No, uh, that's where we met Bob and just had a had a hell of a time. Um, did. It's absolutely whack to me that the story about, like, Percy and Beckendorf chasing around a robot dragon ended up having more future plot relevance than the one where they brainwashed a titan into joining their side. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh my god, that's so true. That, yeah, because that literally ties into, I mean, that ties into stuff here. Uh, and t- just stuff for the entire series. Oh my god. <laughs> I, yeah, we, should we just get right into the first story? I think we should. So the first story here, and this is, ugh, the the first story here is uh, the diary of Luke Castellan. Would you like me to summarize? Hell yes. So Luke, age fourteen, and Thalia, age twelve, are traveling and surviving together when their journey is interrupted by a goat called Amalthea, who Thalia insists they follow because she's one of Zeus, her father's sacred animals. She takes them across Virginia to a brick mansion that looks haunted as hell. Thalia says they should go in because Amalthea brings her to good things. Apparently that's how she found Luke. Uh, they go inside, bypassing the locks using Luke's magical thief skills. But when they get in, they're magically trapped. All the doors and windows impossible to get through. They're chased deeper into the house of horrors by an unknown monster, eventually getting cornered in a room with an old demigod named Halcyon Green, a son of Apollo. This is his house, and after using his gift of prophecy to save a girl's life, he was cursed by Apollo to live there forever, guarded by monsters called the Lucrote that speak for him and keep him alive to use as bait, luring demigods into their chambers to be eaten. Luke is pissed about the unfairness of all of that, so they decide to try and help him out. Uh, it turns out that the thing most demigods come here for is treasure. Specifically, a treasure box that Luke realizes is trapped with a curse and a poison canister that will kill everyone if he if he opens it. Uh, still, he's the master of unlocking, so he's able to get into the box and find the treasure, which is just some stupid bracelet. Thalia puts it on, and Hal gets super excited because his curse is supposed to end when the owner of the treasure finally claims it. Still, the Lucrote are after them, so Hal decides to read the kids' futures. After all, it's not like Apollo can hurt him anymore. He sees all the shit that's going to happen to them and is like, wow, that fucking sucks. Sorry, kids. <laughs> then they finally decide on a plan. They're going to create Greek fire and use it to blow the hell out of the Lucrode and the house itself. Knowing he probably won't make it out of this alive, Hal gives Luke his diary, which contains all of his future knowledge and thoughts, as well as a celestial bronze dagger that was given to him by the girl he saved, which protects its owner. He lures the Lucrote into position, and the explosion goes off, but one of them still gets out and pounces on Thalia. 
until she and Luke realized that what Amaltea was leading them to was the bracelet, which is actually Aegis, Zeus's shield, made partially of Amaltea's skin. She activates the shield and scares the monster off, letting the kids get away. After dodging through the streets of Richmond for a while, they're attacked in an alleyway by a seven-year-old girl named Annabeth who ran away from home. She's scared, but Luke and Thalia promise to protect her. Luke gives her the dagger, letting her know it's perfect for a clever girl like her, and they take her to their safe house on the James River. Their family's grown, and Luke signs off. The end. So, Jane, what'd you think of that one? Luke Castellan did nothing wrong. God! This, <laughs> this... Oh my god. <laughs> this fucking story. This... This was probably my favorite story in the whole thing, which is kind of kind of saying a lot because most of this, I think, all the stories in this own. Yeah, they're but all holy good. Shit. <laughs> yeah, this one is like, this is exactly what I like. This is the one extra dimension that I didn't know I needed to lose character. Hmm. Like. Like okay. I fucking love, like, like I think Luke is a great antagonist already. Um, to clarify, Luke did plenty of things wrong. He did, he did. <laughs> um, however, this story shows so much, like, why does Luke hate the gods so much? Like, not just his dad, but just, like, all the gods. And we get a pretty good idea of, wh- of what may have formed that here. Uh, yeah, because... This is kind of in in the space that we've only really seen Lightning Thief play around in before, uh-huh. which is like the Greek. What are the Greek gods up to when they're not in a crisis? Uh, and it turns out being huge fucking assholes is what they're doing for no reason. For no reason, Apollo has contrived this entire situation, gotten dozens of demigods killed, and made this guy suffer for decades because he used his gift of prophecy to save someone's life. It's bonkers. It's like, it's weird. It's like, not just the assholes, like, not just the mean gods. All the gods are like this. Mm hmm. It makes Apollo's, like, happy go lucky SoundCloud rapper routine come across as absolutely fucking psychopathic in a way that I really like. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's, and, like, this, I think is a great foundation for like, because Luke has a lot of just like, I think character defining things here. Like mm-hmm. he, Oh, the, this entire story is, I think very well put into his perspective. Like it, it's not, it doesn't just feel like Percy or something like that. This feels like Luke. And I think part of the, uh, part of this that I enjoy that really makes me like, that really like makes me happy about like how this entire like, I guess, dynamic works is just how seriously he takes Thalia. Mm-hmm. I, I love this, like, family. This little family is so nice. See, that's it's kind of interesting that you would say that, like, you like the Luke's perspective feels so um, different from Percy's, because I I kind of felt like the perspective was very felt very similar to Percy's, uh, but I actually kind of like that. It's intentional. For, like, yeah, definitely, because, like, you know, for the brief time that they were friends, you could tell that they had quite a lot in common and that Luke saw a lot of himself in Percy. And so, like, getting his perspective and it sounding so much like Percy is a really good way of bringing that across. 
Yeah, I agree. When I say that they're, I think I mean that there are like key character differences and like ways mm-hmm. they respond to things. But yeah. I mean, we've talked about how Percy is kind of growing into a Luke figure for others. A little bit, yeah. He's he's get, going to that mentor role. So like I, this really is perfect. Uh, one, th- the first thing that really knocked me out on my ass while reading this uh-huh. and made me like, what's going to happen in this fucking story, is just like the loving description of uh, okay, I'm, I'm a, do you know what I'm going to talk about immediately? Are you going to talk about the Robert E. Lee statue? No, I'm not going oh. to talk about that. I'm going to talk about Amaltea's udders. <laughs> Because Luke is just like, wow, her udders are so weird. She has very prominent udders. And then, like, event- later on, they, like, look at her udders. And, like, th- like each one is labeled, like, Diet Coke, Pepsi, like, ice. There's, one, there's an option for ice. <laughs> How does that work? Um, And something really fucked up that I didn't realize until, <laughs> until my second reread. Uh-huh. The entire first time I read this, I thought this was a satyr. <laughs> so so I, I thought there was just like some woman that Luke and Thalia were following around and Luke was just like, wow, her udders. Uh, it's fucked up that Grover only gets one option for drinks. <laughs> oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> I... I do, I do really like that though. I just think it's, it's funny. It's kind of like weird and unhinged in that like early Percy Jackson way, in the same way that like Procrustes Waterbed Emporium was. Agreed, agreed. It's got the same kind of vibes. Yeah. To be clear, this is just a real goat. I think. It's just a goat. I, I'm so used to people saying goat in the series and meaning satyr. You know what? That's entirely fair. <laughs> They do have this conversation in front of a Robert E. Lee statue, though. Oh, this is true. They're in, they're in fucking Virginia, uh, and Luke's perspective on Robert E. Lee is like, I think he lost a war once. <laughs> this is a this is a fourteen year old who ran away from home a few years ago. He does not have is a it, lot of education. He is not in school. No. Uh, also, uh, just a fun historical note: uh, as of September last year, that statue isn't there anymore. It got torn down. Oh, fuck yeah. <laughs> but also, like, okay, I don't know how intentional this is. Because we know that Rick goes back and forth on how willing he is to do, like, cr- systemic critique. But the fact that this entire story revolves around, like, ancient unresolved sins by, like, the powerful and, like, the gods and shit. And it opens on them, like, at a Confederate monument which is, like, you know, an unresolved leftover from, like, the sins committed by the powerful. I don't know. I can't tell if that's deliberate or not. I think it must partially be, because the setting is, like, this house of horrors, like, not quite confederate, but, like... I think it's described as, like, a Gone with the Wind-style house. Yes, that is the exact... That's exactly what I was thinking about. Like, Mm -hmm. this is... This is a... This is a... a This is an old-ass mansion in Virginia, which, like, means something. Uh Uh-huh. And... and Those are called colonial houses for a reason. Yes. And so I think that there is an element of intentionality to that. That kind... Which kind of, like... Like, you kind of have to be doing a systemic critique in this story 
mm-hmm. because like Jesus Christ, should we talk about Halcyon Green? <laughs> Fucking poor Halcyon Green. <laughs> This is the weirdest character that I didn't know I needed in like, <laughs> in this series. A 60-year-old demigod, which is fucking hilarious about, like, Luke being, like, he looked ancient. Like, 60, at least. Which is just, like, simultaneously very funny and also characterful. Like, it, it's, and like, also okay. horrifying. Also horrifying. Like, it's it's funny that Luke thinks that 60 is, like, the most ancient thing you could be. Um, also, he's a demigod, and that is the most ancient a demigod can be. Oh, absolutely. This is, Unless you are in fucking Camp Jupiter, this is the only way that you live past 20 as a demigod. Yeah, you get cursed to live forever. Surviving off the fucking used toothbrushes of demigods that you've killed. <laughs> I mean, that is what he does. Like the the monsters lure demigods into the house, and what Halcyon Green gets out of this is that they use his voice. They like ventriloquize him to lure them in. Uh, the monsters eat the demigods, and Halcyon gets to keep whatever rations are in their backpacks. It's he's reduced to this like scavenger. Like mm-hmm. he's just absolutely absolutely dehumanized. It's one of the most horrific things that, like, I think Rick Riordan has ever put in a book. <laughs> Absolutely. This is, I mean, we'll, we'll get to it later, but this is definitely at least the top 10 th- worst things the Olympians have done. Uh-huh. Like, when they finally get to his room and they find him there and he they see that he is not moving. He is speaking, but not moving his mouth. There is a horrifying creature in a cage next to him that is speaking for him. Mm-hmm. I th- that is just like an um, amazing horror beat. I think it's, it's a really good, it's, it is a horror story basically. Yeah. They're in a haunted mansion. They're in a haunted mansion. And the thing that barely revolves around like action like, they, they get into this situation, they realize, like, oh, at sundown, the uh, monsters will eat you, and then uh, I'll wait until I can find some more demigods to steal rations from. Uh, and, like, the bulk of the story is just them, like, stuck in the house trying to figure out what to do before sundown, where they get eaten. I think this would be, like, a really genuinely good horror movie if it was, like, produced like that. Oh, definitely. <sighs> Halcyon Green. The, the whole bit is that he, like, has to talk through them to them via like typing on a computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's very like, this is like the year 2000. So it's just a very funny mental image to me. Yeah. It's, it's also, it plays into an extremely funny discovery that we get in this book related to computers. Uh huh. Hermes is the God of the internet. Apparently. Oh yes. Yes. Hermes I forgot is the about God that. of posting. He, yeah, he's the, he's the god of postage and of posting. <laughs> yeah, Hermes. Oh, we'll we'll fucking get to Hermes. Mm-hmm. Oh. I got I gotta say, but between this story and the Lin Manuel Miranda thing, per- Luke has never been a more sympathetic antagonist than he is at this moment. <laughs> oh, it's so true. I um, I think it's really funny that Luke just has like Skyrim lockpick skill. It is, it's really good. And I love that as, like, because we don't, it's very rare that we see, like, powers from kids who aren't the big three. Like, the most we get is, like, exceptional abilities, like Piper's Charm Speak or Leo's Fire Stuff. 
Uh-huh. So I like the idea that just some Hermes kids have this kind of low-key ability that's not terribly flashy. Yeah, it. And- if we're making it like a like a thing of it it really paints luke as because this is does feel like a very minor power but it feels like luke has a very powerful manifestation of it mm-hmm. because he's able to just like basically it almost seems like without thought break locks and like there's a very powerful curse on the treasure box that contains aegis and he just like fucking gets rid of it and disarms a poison canister no sweat i mean, part of me kind of wonders if that's related to like how you view your godly parent uh-huh. Because Luke, there's a, there's a moment in his internal monologue where he is talking about, like, oh, what what is Hermes? What's he the god of? And when he's talking about, like, oh, he's the god of postage, travel, messengers, uh, he's also the god of thieves because he stole my mother's sanity and my chance at a decent life and a bunch of other stuff. And it seems like that's the thing that he's really fixated on and bitter about. So it kind of makes sense that his powers manifest most strongly in terms of, like, thievery. I've never thought about that before, but yeah, it makes sense to me. Like, I wonder if, like, hmm, because I think there has to be that element of connection because, like, maybe that's part of why Percy has such a strong connection to, like, water because Percy's, like, when Percy thought of his dad, he thought of, like, a guy lost at sea. Mm-hmm. Oh, and, yeah. And, like, his memories of him were, uh, his memories of him were, like, stepping out of the, like, stepping through the waves and, like, with his mom at the beach house and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, I, that, that that could be something. That could definitely be something. Thalia is just, like, a, a firebrand 12-year-old. Thalia is... Yeah, this is very much back to the, um, the PJO cal- uh, characterization of her. She mellowed out a lot by the time of Lost Hero. Uh, but we're back to her just being, like, having a very stormy personality, TM, haha. Yeah, and like, where where are we at with Thalia? Because she's twelve right now. She's Jason's older sister, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, or wait, or younger sister is I can't remember which. Uh, no, she's older. Right. Okay. Because but he's older than her now. Is the okay? Yes. Um, because she's immortally she's forever like fifteen or whatever. Yeah, she got turned into a tree and then became immortal. Exactly. It's, you can really feel the, I just watched my baby brother get sold coming off of her. Yeah, I mean, there's a moment uh, when Halcyon Green is reading her future where he just mentions like, oh, you'll be reunited with your family or something. And she freaks the fuck out. She's not having it. Thaya is quick to be like, no, fuck you. All these prophecies are stupid. Luke, don't listen to him. Which is, like, it's such a good, like, tragic beat, because, like, we know why she says that, but also it primes Luke to not take it seriously when Halcyon says, hey, you're gonna fuck up really bad and betray everyone you care about. God. Which he does, he was right. Yeah, oh my god, the story. Yeah, Luke, <laughs> there is just so much tragedy here. Like, I think... That- Halcyon like giving Luke the diary and being like maybe if you just write your thoughts down like do some journaling kid try and work out some of that (laughs) anger go to therapy and don't become a fascist it's so good and I love that like Luke explicitly takes the wrong lesson away from Halcyon's death 
where Halcyon is telling him to like, you know, you need to, you know, maybe work through your problems so you don't end up like I did. Uh, but Luke walks away thinking, fuck the gods, the gods must die. <laughs> Which, like, is an understandable reaction, but also explicitly not what Halcyon wanted, and it just primes him to be the villain later so well. I... Certain moments in this make me wonder, like... And this is obviously not how... Not how, like... this. Is, these are stories written by someone. Um, but, like... I look at certain moments in this where like Thalia is not present for a moment. And then she like what Luke says when she gets back and like specifically the part where like Thalia is gone for a bit. And when she gets back, Luke is like, okay, we have to sacrifice Halcyon Green. Mm. And that's one of those moments that like from Thalia's perspective, like why the fuck did that happen? Luke is vicious. Like, mm-hmm. Like, and like, but like, because she doesn't know that they just had like a conversation where Luke was like, no, you can't do that. And Halcyon was like, no, we, I have to do this. So, oh, yeah, you're right. That is pretty fucked from the Thalia POV. And so, something about it is like, I wonder if you can do like, I wonder if Thalia, the character, could do like a po- like a justification, like, well, Luke was bad all along. There, there was the evidence. Oh, yeah. Speaking of justifications, um, I really liked the fact that no Greek gods show up to justify themselves in this story. Like, because usually when the Greek gods do something fucked to, like, Percy, they'll show up and give some excuses at the end, like Juno and Son of Neptune. And I kind of like the fact that none of them show up here, because it kind of recontextualizes that. Where it's like, Percy is a powerful demigod, he's important, he's relevant to their plans... So at the end of the day, Juno is going to show up and be like, no, no, I did it for these reasons, you see. But if you're not that, if you're just some random demigod out in the world, uh, the gods will fuck you over or put you in a horrible position or just make you see something terrible. And you just have to eat shit because there's nothing you can do about it. Yeah, it's interesting because it feels like to just like, like you said, some random demigod out there, the gods may as well not be real to an extent. Like, yeah, they are, are they're malicious. Yeah, like, if, the, yeah, there are monsters and there's magic and there's weird powers happening. But, like, I don't know. Who the fuck is Zeus? He's, he would never, like, who's my, like, who is my parent? I don't know. They would never, like, visit me. I don't know what's happening. Mm-hmm. Like, you're not, you're not going to get claimed, like, for certainly back then. So, like, what does any of it mean to you? God, the story. The story is great. Should we, should we go to the final section of it? I think so. I think this bit feels a little bit tacked on. Maybe. I I like it. I it does feel like the it doesn't quite match the pacing, but I appreciate it being here, um, mm-hmm. especially because so we go we go pretty much immediately. We figure out that like, like an hour after they do this, they meet Annabeth. Yeah. Um. And it kind of feels like, wait, what's happening? But then you realize, like, okay, first of all, an incredibly sweet scene. Like, I love, I love Luke giving Annabeth the dagger. I think it's wonderful. That does rule. Um, but just reading, like, reading like Richmond Ironworks on the side of the building, and me remembering, like, oh fuck, what happens in Richmond Ironworks to these kids, like. Mm-hmm. Like some like it makes you realize that they're going through horrible shit every single day. 
Yeah, it's it seems like it's fucking horrible to be a demigod. One might one might think so. Like today, Halcyon Green. Tomorrow, a fucking Cyclops. And like, I feel like that's kind of this is kind of more leaning into the logic of the PGO books, which were very much like a more brutal, um, like the de- demigods basically live fast, die young. And that's something that's been very much downplayed in Heroes of Olympus. Mm-hmm. But I feel like we're back to that in this specific story, which I enjoy. Same. Now, should we go for a... Should we go for maybe like a lighter tone story? Oh yeah, my, my one final note on this book. Which is that I thought that the solution to get rid of the uh, monsters was going to be like... You know, they have this, this safe that they need to open, which has a treasure in it. And they open it and despite being defended by the vial of poison gas, it's just this worthless bracelet. Uh, and I thought the treasure was going to be that they could use the poison gas to kill the monsters. Oh, that I, I actually wondered about that as well. Um, oh, that, that part is so fucked because Luke is just like, yeah, put some wet rags over your face, like over your mouth and nose, and maybe you'll survive. Yeah, that's how fucking British soldiers survive chlorine gas attacks. Sorry, mustard gas. So, yeah. Fucked. I guess Luke... Luke knows a little bit about wars, I guess. He does. He'll learn even more via osmosis once he's traveling with Annabeth. Oh, wait, yeah, that's the other thing that we kind of need to talk about. Uh-huh. Uh, Luke framing their little family is like, oh, you know, I'm the dad, uh, Thalia's the mom, and Annabeth the daughter. Oh, yeah, this, part's, this part is made weird a little bit. Th- this is fine in isolation. Yeah. However, it's... the context of Last Olympian... <laughs> Did you ever love me? Bro. Dude, come on. This is why I had to clarify that Luke Castellan did in fact do several things wrong. Oh god. Don't don't do that, people. If you if you're ever in this very Don't date your adopted child. Who is like seven years younger than Wow, that's I never thought about that before. Um mm-hmm. God. Yeah, don't don't do that. Yucky yucky. If you're ever in this exact situation, don't don't be or like Or indeed Luke. a similar situation. Yeah, or yeah, just generalize. Take the general ideas and don't apply them. Uh-huh. Uh but if but speaking of Annabeth and romance, uh would you like to move on to the second story? I would like to move on to the second story. Uh, what's our final judgment on on uh on the fucking diary of Luke Castellan. Uh this rules. The fact that it's the last entry in the diary also rules. Yeah, he wrote one entry. He wrote one entry which is like the guy said, you know, you need to keep writing in this thing if you want any hope of avoiding your horrible fate. And Luke did not do that and got his horrible fate. Uh Anyway, yeah, the story's good. Agreed. Uh let me see. Uh, Percy Jackson and the Staff of Hermes is our next story. Oh, wait, do we want to cover the in-between activities? Is there anything? No. There's a crossword between these two, I think. Or like a word search or something. Oh, wait, yeah, it's just that weird decoder thing where the answer is so obvious at like first glance that you don't need to bother doing it. Yeah. Anyway, Percy Jackson and the Staff of Hermes. Uh, we open on Percy and Annabeth sharing a picnic together at Camp Half-Blood. Annabeth asked Percy about the dinner he told her that he had planned for their one-month anniversary, 
which is news to Percy, who totally forgot that he was going to arrange that. Fortunately, before he has to cop to his horrible mistake, Hermes appears, asking for Percy's help with something. His staff, an accompanying two snakes, George and Martha, has been stolen, and he needs, and he needs Percy to get it back for him on the sly so that the other Olympians don't mock him for being a god of thieves who got his shit jacked. He tells Percy that a guy named Cacus has it, and Percy takes this idiotic quest as an out so that he doesn't have to deal with the consequences of his thoughtlessness, while also arranging a reward for Hermes if he, from Hermes if he should succeed. He takes Annabeth with him and they set off as they need to finish the, find the staff before 5 o'clock that day. They find Cacus hiding in the sewers of the meatpacking district with a bunch of stolen and counterfeit goods, as they discover he base, he's basically one of those guys who hides in alleys with trench coats lined with fake watches. He also has a bunch of rotting cows that he periodically cooks by breathing fire onto before consuming whole. It turns out that yes, he does have George and Martha, but he doesn't know how to use their powers yet. He boasts about how the only demigod who's killed him before is Hercules, and does some vague Gaia foreshadowing before a battle ensues, ending with Percy and Annabeth escaping by bursting a bunch of sewage pipes and fleeing to the surface covered in poo. Cacus follows, having figured out how to use the staff's laser mode, and blowing up a bunch of buildings as he pursues the demigods. Eventually, Percy lures him into a construction site, and distracts him long enough for Annabeth to get in a crane and grab the monster, hurling him into the air and making him drop the staff. Percy grabs George and Martha, who obligingly transform into laser mode again so that he can no-scope Cacus in mid-air and kill him. Percy and Annabeth get back to Hermes, delivering his staff just in the nick of time. Hermes does some vague foreshadowing about the gods sealing off Olympus, and then pays the piper regarding Percy's reward, using his god of travel powers to magically teleport Percy and Annabeth to an all-expenses-paid fancy restaurant in Paris, which Percy tries to pretend was his one-month anniversary plan. Annabeth obviously doesn't buy this, but they still have a nice time together, especially as Percy successfully blackmailed Hermes into giving him an Olympian credit card, and the two go shopping together after dinner. The end. Yay! Jacqueline, what did you, what did you think of Percy Jackson and the staff of Hermes? I liked it. It was cute. It was like just a fun little adventure. It felt like it felt like something you would find like like you would find this in the corners of Rick Riordan's blog. Like, oh, here's just an extra <laughs> chapter I wrote. Like it, it also fe- feels like it feels it feels like it fills um pieces of missing time in a way that I enjoy. Like this is this is a section of their life that we never got to see. I I like it. It's good. It's my it's minor relationship drama brought into big tight big giant battle. Yeah, it's it, it's so often in like media it uh, relationships are either like forming a relationship is the conclusion of a story or a relationship breaking down is the inciting incident. And that's kind of where Percy Jackson has been at with the like Percy and Annabeth stuff. So it's nice to get a story that is just these two hanging out and doing couple stuff, even if the couple stuff is killing a giant. Yeah, yeah, it's like okay, the Percy and dynamic, the Percy and Annabeth, the dynamic Annabeth, the dynamic Annabeth and Percy, (laughs) the dynamic Annabeth and the foolish Percy. (laughs) (laughs) No, um, their dynamic is still just like golden. Absolutely, there's just I. I love what a shit boyfriend Percy is. Yeah. He's just, he he forgets their one month anniversary. He agrees to interrupt their date to do a favor for a guy that she hates. And then like <laughs> runs her through sewer water. It's amazing. She, like she doesn't seem to mind too much at the end of the day. 
uh, which makes sense no, I, for her. Uh-huh. I think Annabeth knew exactly what she was getting into when she decided to date Percy. Definitely. Like, they're. I think this story really, like, emphasizes how similar they are. Mm-hmm. Especially in regards to, um... Is it me or is Annabeth, like, worse than Percy when it comes to just, like, immediately picking fights with gods? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think it might, you know, there's, there's, there's context in history with Hermes and Annabeth, but the fact that she immediately goes for him does definitely evoke, like, Percy's impertinence TM. Yeah, and, like, her, her entire thing with Hera, too. Oh, yeah, no, you're right, actually, they, they are both pretty similar when it comes to that. They're fucking perfect for each other in that way. <laughs> yeah, I I love the aggression. Uh, just like her hating Hermes, which makes so much sense, and Hermes seemingly just having no opinion on her or like wanting to ignore her because I have to imagine it doesn't feel great to think about Annabeth existing. I thought I, I thought the way that the story was framed was like Percy uh, Hermes hates her as well because he was expecting Annabeth to like get hitched to Luke and then basically be his therapist to stop him from being evil. That's what Percy like says, but it doesn't, mm-hmm. I, th- I, th- I agree with you. I, I forgot about that. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I definitely, but I also the way that Hermes is sort of like doing that is just by like kind of ignoring her. Pretending she doesn't exist. And the only Percy is here. Basically. Yes. Honestly, Percy and Hermes I'm kind of delighted by the entire scene of them sitting in the back of a fucking FedEx truck <laughs> and just like talk. There's just some very like good P- like PJO style humor here. Like they're sitting on a box labeled explosives, but it's better than the one that says like, do not sit poisonous tarantulas inside. And like the uh-huh. one next to it that says like, do not put next to poisonous tarantulas. <laughs> it's very good. I also, I, I, going back to that, like, you know, Percy is always having problems with gods. I love that when they're like, they're kind of, nego- they're haggling over this quest because, you know, Hermes really needs Percy to do this for him. And Hermes kind of like throws out this veiled threat where he's like, you know, you, you, I bet you didn't know, but uh, I can use my staff to turn people into stone. Anyway, keep, remember to keep quiet about this. haha. Oh God. Yeah. And Percy, like, doesn't even pay any mind and is just immediately like, okay, here's what you're going to do for me in exchange for this. (laughs) He has enough experience with the gods to know when they're bluffing, I think. I I think Percy is also, because this is also the point where he's, like, literally invulnerable. I think he knows that this is the point where he can actually get away with fucking with them. That's true. I, I forgot that he was invulnerable at this point because I think it's it's not like forgotten in this. In fact, it, it is brought up. But it's mentioned, but it doesn't really, nothing really comes of it. It doesn't really play into the whole thing. Uh, and that's that's like fine. I, It does kind of feel like Rick Riordan just like forgot that Percy was invulnerable in a few too many short stories and was like, eh, I'll get rid of it in Son of Neptune. <laughs> Fuck, that might be it. Because I did, I did poke around on the wikis for this, and it, um, it specifically called out, like, it's really weird that Percy barely uses his invulnerability in this story. This is similar to this other short story where it doesn't come up at all, even though he should be at that point. God. So I think he might be onto something there. There's also a brief Janus mention. 
uh, they mentioned the Janus, who we saw as, like, the kind of creepy, like, god of, like, duality and doors and all that stuff, like... He was Two-Face. He was Two-Face, uh, but he was, like, he was kind of an important figure in, I want to say it was the Battle of the Labyrinth? Yeah. Um, where it sort of, I think that was sort of the beginning of the entire Hera thing in this series, with him saying that, like, Annabeth would have a choice, et cetera, et cetera. Mm-hmm. And, which I'm, I'm, I'm gonna put my bets on, like, is gonna come up next book. Uh, but, it, it already did. Did it? Yeah, it, it was one of the, we were annoyed because it resolved off screen. The choice was, uh, Luke, um, like, came to her at some point between Battle of the Labyrinth and Last Olympian. Uh, and said, look, let's just fucking run away together and forget about all of this. And Annabeth quite understandably told him to fuck off. Right, And her choice okay. was, Yeah. Right. Okay. That was very important. That but also <laughs> happened off screen, so I forgot about it. Yeah. But but regardless, it was still the beginning of like the entire Hera stuff too. Absolutely. And, yeah. And he's also he's just mentioned here as like, oh yeah, he works in Hollywood. He Janus runs Netflix, is what we learn here. Because <laughs> Hermes is like, he, you know, he's the god of beginnings and endings, which is why he keeps starting shows and then canceling them immediately. He's the one who fucking canceled the Get Down. I don't know what that is. Because it only had like one season. I'll take your word for it. Well, that's just fine. Anyway, <laughs> um, Caucus. Caucus Bolus. Caucus Bolus. That is his name in the story. <laughs> uh, I would love it if just in one of these stories they dropped fuck. Like they, I just want, I want Percy <laughs> to shout fuck at least once. <laughs> Is there a specific, is this just a general request or was there a specific part where you're thinking, damn, Percy really should have said fuck here? I I mean, there are plenty of times like that. I think the funniest one would have been in The Lightning Thief because he was like 12. <laughs> like, I that was a I book mean, that I got. Uh-huh. He, he tried to drop it in Son of Neptune. He tried as hard as he could and Rick censored him. Yeah, Rick expunged it from the fucking reality. <laughs> God, uh, Caucus is a great villain. I, I again, it's just, it's like the um, the bizarre goat has ice udders thing in the last story. Where it's just like this is a fucking unhinged way to add like modern stuff to like a Greek myth. That he's just some fucking skeevy guy who sells fake watches. Yeah, he says fake Rolexes. Um, like. Pfft fucking construction equipment because he killed an entire construction crew <laughs> and like because he's in the meatpacking district so he just sells like entire cows he fucking unhinges his jaw and swallows the rotting cows whole god i isn't me or is caucus a better giant villain than like every other giant we've met so far no he is he is Rick, just make them, like, fun characters. You can still do that. <laughs> I, yeah, because they, they don't do anything. They are just, like, they run around with armies or they stand on a hill waiting for the protagonist to show up and fight them. You know, be like Carcass. Get some hustle. Get out there and sell some <laughs> fucking fake Gucci bags. Oh my god, wait, you're right, though. Two of the giants we've met so far have literally just been standing on a hill waiting for the group to come kill them. <laughs> They're literally like breath of the wild like <laughs> like they're like the big lions that run around oh they are to, 
I just give them a gimmick. Give them something fun. Be more of them should be like Caucus, who is just like Annabeth mutters like, "Oh, he's ginger," which is a very like remnant of its t- of its time sort of joke. I think. Uh huh. Like, oh, people we have, have to red see hair. South Park like culturally contaminating the Percy Jackson books. Yeah, but I guess it was literally everywhere. Yeah. Christ. Um, Percy. In the confrontation with Caucus, Percy does something I don't think we've seen him do before, uh, which caught my attention, which was try and leverage his reputation. Yeah, he does, like, a a Greek hero boast. Yeah, and this is something we've seen from, like, Jason before. Mm -hmm. Um, But Percy does, like, hey, I fucking single-handedly slew Chrono. Like, no, I slew, uh, like, Hyperion. I fucking took down Chronos. Like you, like you don't want to fight me, and Caucus is like whatever. But it's still interesting <laughs> that Percy tries it. Yeah, I do. I do also like the reasoning he lays out, though, which is not like this is not Percy getting too big for his boots. This is Percy is kind of scared and doesn't want to fight this guy, and is kind of hoping he can psych him out. <laughs> yes, yes. Like that's the fact that <laughs> it, it remains it's very Percy. Yeah, it remains anchored in his personality in that way. Uh, George and Martha. They're great. I love these two. <laughs> I love that they can turn into a laser beam and also a pen and paper. I love that they can turn into uh, a phone that then plays the Macarena as a ringtone. And Martha is like, oh, remember, we danced uh, to this at our wedding, George. <laughs> <laughs> They're snakes. They're snakes. How do they dance? <laughs> I don't know, but I want to know. It's just, it's cute to imagine. I, I, yeah, I just like, I like George and Martha. I enjoy, like, this element coming back in. This this is sort of silly little, like, oh yeah, the funny snakes that Hermes has. They're back. And the entire fight is just made up of so many memorable bits. Like, this is what, this is maybe one of my favorite Percy Jackson fights. Mm-hmm. Which is interesting, like, given that it is, Almost the least combat-oriented story, I feel like, or focused. I don't know. I feel like I feel like a lot of this is like dedicated to the action scene. Like writing the summary for this was pretty easy because <laughs> I could just breeze over those bits. You're right. I guess I mean where the heart of it is. Ah, uh, like, yeah. No, I, I see. The the heart of like the the Leo one is kind of the action of it all. Yeah, yeah. I see what you mean. But but this one is all about Percy and Annabeth. And, but you're right that a lot of it is devoted to the action. And I I think that's good because it's good. They're like the, the fucking sewer water that Percy controls. <laughs> just absolutely disgusting. The crane game bit where Annabeth is like, oh, yeah, I'm really you know, I'm really good at crane games. I'm going to pick up Caucus with a fucking crane. And then throw him in the air. and Then you nail him with the Spartan laser. They do fucking, like, what is it, like, skeet shooting? Yeah. God, I, speaking of, um, going back to the sewer water, speaking of disgusting, um, they, it's it's kind of a throwaway thing that they mention that on the, they get the Metro back to Hermes to hand over George and Martha. Uh-huh. And Percy's like, you know, we made sure to get them a couple of rats on the way. And I just... The, the image of, like, Percy having to, like, hold the pole as far away from him as possible while, like, dangling George and Martha over some rats as they, like, disassemble them. I, it's so fucking horrible and grim, but really funny to me. 
<laughs> it is, and it's also just like a very subtle, like uh, the New York subway joke. <laughs> it's got rats. They got rats. They got rats. I one. I I like. Um, Percy has like some choice comments about like something that I I always is just like always charming to me is when Percy is like I'm a true and blue New Yorker, and th- that shows up a few times here in a way in ways that I enjoy. <laughs> It is. It's cool when that happens. Especially his, his comment about, like, um, the meatpacking district became the packing district because everyone wanted to leave because we broke everything. <laughs> <laughs> God, that part was so good. I I don't have a ton left to say. Do you have much else for this? Uh, I don't think so. I like the ending scene where um, Percy and Annabeth get to just, like, fuck around in Paris for a little while. It's cute. It's cute. I they probably wouldn't have needed to um, build a boat to fly to Rome, if if Olympus wasn't sealed off and Hermes could just like teleport them there. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but speaking of, I guess speaking of getting to Rome via boat. Speaking of the Argo too. Speaking of the Argo too, uh, Leo Valdez and the quest for Buford. Shall I summarize? No, nope, we're good. Let's go. Merry Christmas Eve. While working on the Argo 2, Leo loses a syncopator, or, more accurately, a semi-sentient table named Buford gets huffy when Leo tries to clean him with Windex and walks out with a syncopator into the woods. Without that part, the whole engine is going to explode and blow up all of Bunker 9 and the woods in one hour. Luckily, Leo's got Piper and Jason, who go into the woods with him to help look. Along the way, they hear from Anaya that her crazy cousins are stalking around the woods, and eventually, the group encounters both Buford and said cousins at the site of the Battle of the Labyrinth. They're manads, followers of Dionysus, who like to rip and tear people to shreds when they get too excited. After a fumbled attempt by Leo at pretending to be Dionysus, the manads attack and the gang make a run for it. They're not able to kill the fucked up nymphs because if they do, Dionysus will curse them. So instead, while Jason secures Buford, Leo and Piper lead the Manons back to Bunker 9 and rig a trap made of Hephaestian netting to just keep them trapped. Jason arrives with Buford and the syncopator, Leo fixes the engine, Chiron arrives to send the Manons to Atlantic City, and everyone has a jolly Camp Half-Blood Christmas Eve that night around the campfire. The end. This story is basically like the Lost Hero Christmas special. Uh huh. It's very delightful. I like it a lot. It's delightful. If I had to pick like a quote unquote least favorite story, this might be it. It's basically a gag story. It's a gag story. Like I, I still love it, but mm-hmm. it, it, I think it's got the least substance to it of any of these. Definitely. One of my main takeaways is that I do. I've I've confirmed it. I just really like this group of characters. Oh, for sure. I I just yeah. I read this and I thought, oh yeah, this is why Leo is our favorite character coming off the heels of Lost Hero. Yeah, yeah. Basically, like <laughs> it's great to get an entire story from his perspective. Uh, like he's his sick, twisted mind truly is genius. <laughs> <laughs> Him like giving them the short explanation and being like still too science it's a pretty like common in english damn it in english yes exactly that uh but it's it's filtered through like leo's just like voice in a way that makes it more but in a way that makes it fun Mm -hmm. i also like 
the 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 first attempt at a short answer that he gives them where he's like you know i've got these two volatile magical substances and i've rigged up a thing that will like intermittently combine them in the chamber uh in like controlled amounts so that we can basically produce thrust from that uh, i eat that shit up i'm like i'm like the one person who enjoys the 200 pages of um rhythm of war by brandon sanderson where it's just two wizards in a tower doing systems exploitation on the universe's magic system god so anything like that i am just yes please more of this no i love that when leo is left alone he will create nuclear fission <laughs> <laughs> like that's fucking awesome it's good I th- what is it it's like a combination of like water from the river sticks and like hephaestus like forges fire yeah i think that's a that's like that's interesting that's like whoa the world works like that that's so cool i want to see more of this in mark of athena when they're on the boat same i want to know all about the argo twos in and outs yeah there's lots of like when they're in the woods there's a section that's just like full of like i don't i guess like racial humor there is i i'm glad that i wasn't the only one who was like this is kind of strange it was a little strange leo has a section where he talks about how he used to dress up as what he calls taco claws oh god um, which um that's uh, at least a little bit racist right surely Um, from from a white man writing this mexican child uh uh-huh yeah and then piper Leo is like, hey, Piper, can you, like, track these trails? And Piper is like, why do you assume I can do track, like, I can be a tracker? Yeah, I, I, to be, I thought, you know, the Taco Claws joke is kind of, uh, I thought this joke was funny. It was funny. Piper being like, oh, oh, yeah, it looks like a big talking table move through here. Like, very funny. Just take, taking the piss out of Leo for assuming that she can track because she's Native American. Exactly. Um, the Manads are fascinating to me. They're very strange. Quirked up white girls. (laughs) (laughs) Fuck, that's exactly what they are. (laughs) Who are like... They're drinking eggnog. I didn't mention this in the summaries, but their eggnog is what has made them all hyped up. Goated with the eggnog. Exactly. Um, busting it down, I guess, (laughs) Dionysian style. Yeah, I guess so. Dionysus is apparently just gone. Yeah. We're not getting him back. The fuck? Eventually, hopefully. But, like, where is he? I mean, I guess he's on Olympus with all the other gods, but... Do we have to change our Patreon tiers? Maybe. (laughs) Uh, Friend of... Friend of Leo. Honestly, that sounds like an improvement. Yeah. They're, like, they're very silly... Um, they're kind of scary. Mm-hmm. And they give us one of the best sequences in this chapter, which is Leo pretending to be Dionysus. This is this is so fucking funny. I love this. <laughs> because Leo has never met Mr. D. <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't fucking know how to pretend to be Dionysus. And it's he's just like, oh, what are party things I can say? Uh, do you, do you want to do limbo? Do you want some cheese and crackers? I think... I think possibly my favorite joke in this is when um, one of the um, Menads, whatever the fuck, uh, asks him, like, okay, if you're Dionysus, then what is the order of proceedings for our parties? And Leo goes, um, 
we do the hokey cokey? And she <laughs> yes. replies, no, you fool. That's the second stage. <laughs> God, it's so fucking funny. No, <laughs> that bit and also the bit where it's like, surely you know the... If you're Dionysus, <laughs> then surely you know the ancient song we sang. And then he starts humming a tune that he heard on TV. No, you fool. That's the psych TV. That's the psych theme song. That is not the Bacchanalian jingle. That is the theme song for psych. Kill the unbelievers, <laughs> Babette screamed. <laughs> it's fucking. Am- okay, first of all, a reference that is like going to. Nobody will understand that in like two years from now. Oh, I had no idea what this was. I had to look it up. God, that's so... But it still works so well. As far Just as like, I can tell, this TV show is about American Reagan Arataka. <laughs> Wait, oh my god, that's kind of true. <laughs> People need to make this discovery. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I... Psych was a big... Was like a big popular TV show. Everyone loved Psych. And so it's not surprising to me to, like, find a reference to it in this book. Um, But it's just, it's very, I like it when there are just, like, direct cultural references in the series. Mm Mm-hmm. I really like that we are, like, reusing the location from Battle of the Labyrinth. And, like, indicating that that's clearly got some weight with the campers. Like, none of these kids were here for that book. But, like, they... All of them have heard a story from someone who was here about, like, how horrible the battle was and the fact that some people fucking died. Yeah. Probably, like... There's more than you can say for the end of Son of Fucking Neptune. That's true. I mean, probably, like, the same amount of people... uh, Just a few people died. But, like, that's almost on the same scale as what happened in, like, the final book. Mm Mm-hmm. Like, this was a big battle, and the way that they talk about it is, like, it's ancient camp folklore. Yeah, it's 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 getting back to one of the things that I think we really liked about um, Lost Hero, was, like, the way that the events of the first five books kind of rippled into it without being directly a part of, like, the new characters' lives. Yeah. Like, it's just, it's, it's good world-building for a spin-off. Completely agreed. Buford, it, it's silly that there's a table... Um, I love Buford. I hope Buford continues to be like Leo's sidekick. I really hope so. I have a feeling. <laughs> I mean, I was going to say I have a feeling it'll be like the Beckendorf story. But, you know, in the end, the fucking Festus the Dragon is more relevant to the entire series than uh, Beckendorf was. God, oh, that's... I mean, hey, we, we, we get into some of the consequences of Beckendorf's actions later on in this collection. You're right. You're right. Oh my god. <laughs> I like want to move on right now because I I'm so excited to talk about it. Uh any any last thoughts on um Leo Valdez and the quest for Buford? Not particularly. This one was a ton of fun. I liked that it was just like a cheery little story. Uh I like that Leo wins by using his dad's cuck net. That's how yeah. he imprisons the the Menehids. Oh god, it, that is oh like I don't like it being called a <laughs> cocknut. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. That's what Le- Leo doesn't use those words, but he describes like, oh yeah, um my my dad caught Aphrodite cheating on him with Ares, so he put them in the cocknut and dragged them around for everyone to see. Oh. 
that has to be like okay i know this is going back like 70 episodes <laughs> but the act of being of dragging them around town because like the idea in the myths that you hear is like he was humiliating them like he was showing like everyone like that they were that they were like adulterers so he humiliated them to the rest of the gods <laughs> That's look not how good this dude is fucking my wife exactly exactly <laughs> that's not what's happening there Hephaestus is being like hey everyone look I'm being cucked like, <laughs> he this is a this is a very like this has to be a consensual relationship I think like Hephaestus has to like he's into it it has to because like the implication is that they were still doing it while they were in the net <laughs> which means that th- they were into this enough to keep doing that oh my god I, so yeah, I think I think this might not this yeah this is this is a, a get out here I'm gonna fuck your wife now situation. Oh Jesus Christ! But Ojoy sex toy aside, <laughs> let's go let's go on to the final story. A literary epic that almost matches Ojoy sex toy in, in splendor. Should we should we give a little bit of no, you can give the summary and then you can give the summary and oh, then wait. we can do the surprise reveal about this story. Before that, we need to do a surprise reveal of uh, a very interesting piece of information that comes in between um, Leo Valdez and the Quest for Buford and the story. Okay. And the little uh, activities thing. Uh, we have, um, you know, a couple of things. We've got, like, a word search. We can just, like, look for the names of various things for the Camp Half-Blood things. Uh, and we also have a word scramble. Uh, which is you unscramble the words below to find out which seven half-bloods must band together to fulfill oh, the prophecy's quest. Yeah, I did see that. <laughs> <laughs> so I guess the way that the seven half-bloods were revealed <laughs> was in a word scramble. I checked this. I looked on the wiki. This is actually how this this was the first time this was revealed. Oh my god, that's amazing. So we have Jason, Leo, Piper, Frank, uh, Hazel, Percy, and the final, the final one, Hnetaba is Annabeth. I, like, I'm fine with this. <laughs> it makes sense because Nico is like captured right now, so he can't be one of them. Mm-hmm. But this is so funny that this is how it was revealed. It's so. It's it's. This is the series, like, Palpatine's return being uh, spoiled in Fortnite before it was in the movie. Oh my god, you're right. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, sorry, I just wanted to very quickly (laughs) make sure that we had that on the record. Yeah, thank you. Um, (laughs) Shall we we talk about the next Riordan story? The next, Uh, yes, let's go. Uh, The Son of Magic... Uh, Dr. Howard Claymore is a Richard Dawkins-style professional science asshole who is interested in the science of death and travels the country selling books and giving lectures. At a lecture in a small town, he's heckled by a young boy who says that, while he constantly criticizes religious and spiritual explanations for what happens after death, he proposes no alternatives. Claymore arrogantly puts him down and after the show, and enduring some fawning from the event organizer, Ms. Lamia, is approached by the boy again, whose name is Alabaster C. Torrington. Alabaster asks for Claymore's help, saying that he is approaching the scientist because he is in grave danger, and needs to know what to do if someone had found a way to prevent death entirely. Claymore dismisses this as absurd and leaves, but not without a strange business card from the boy. Back at home, Claymore receives an unsolicited phone call from Ms. Lamia, who asks for the boy's contact information. 
when Claymore refuses to hand it over and is instead haughty and annoyed at her bothering him, Lamia's simpering demeanor falls away and she begins threatening Claymore. Claymore hangs up and unplugs his phone before going to bed. That night, his dreams take him to a ruined cathedral, where Alabaster is arguing with a woman who turns out to be his mother. Alabaster is worried, claiming that Lamia is closing in on him, and his mother, named Hecate, says that regretfully she cannot help him as Lamia is one of her children too. Apparently, this means that Alabaster is up shit creek without a paddle. He can't go to anyone else for help because, as it turns out, he's one of the surviving commanders of Cronus's armies from the Battle of Manhattan, so those bridges are all thoroughly burned. Claymore, assuming he's having a lucid dream, demands to wake up and is ejected from the vision by Hecate. The next day, when Claymore visits his favourite local coffee shop to get some work done, Ms. Lamia appears and accosts him, being generally weird and annoying and asking once again for Alabaster's number. This sets off some alarm bells for Claymore because he never mentioned Alabaster's name when she phoned him the night before. Claymore tells her to get lost again and Ms. Lamia gets angry, spouting a nonsense word that turns out to be a hiding enchantment, manipulating the mist so that nobody else in the cafe can see her morph into a hideous snake monster. Because Claymore is an adult rather than a kid, the story can get away with him doing way harder shit than usual, which is why he pulls out a 9mm and fires three rounds into Lamia's face. Unfortunately, this doesn't do shit, and Claymore ends up having to run for it. After some roundabout scurrying where he learns that shooting her doesn't kill her, but it does slow her down, and hearing about how Hera murdered Lamia's children, Claymore returns to the cafe, attempting to exploit the mist that's stopping anyone from helping him, to nick the friendly barista's car keys so he can drive away. Unfortunately, Lamia catches up sooner than expected, using the spell Templum Incendre to set fire to what brings Claymore happiness and safety, which turns out to be the cafe. The barista burns to death, and Claymore barely makes it out alive, driving away and phoning Alabaster. He now realises that the boy was speaking literally when he talked about someone managing to conquer death, and meant that the fact that no matter and meant the fact that no matter what happens to Lamia, she won't fucking die. Alabaster tells Claymore to come and see him, and the doctor floors it. At Alabaster's house, Claymore gets the lowdown on all the rules of the setting, and also learns about Alabaster's history with Kronos. According to Alabaster, Percy and Beckendorf actually killed a shitload of demigods when they blew up the Princess Andromeda, and when Kronos's armies broke, the Olympians massacred hundreds of fleeing enemies, including demigods. Alabaster tried to keep the fight going, and because of that, ended up being cut out of the general amnesty that Percy tried to secure for the kids of the Minor Gods. Since then, Lamia has been hunting him, and Alabaster has been unable to kill her. Unfortunately, Lamia takes this opportunity to show up, and Alabaster's defense spells fall apart because Lamia attached a counter-sigil to Claymore, which has destroyed the defenses. Alabaster and Claymore go outside to face the Lamia. When Lamia and Alabaster fight, the Doctor gives the demigod an idea as to how to defeat Lamia once and for all when Lamia mentions that her new mistress is Gaia, the Earth. Claymore mentions that they could use the Earth itself to trap Lamia, rather than sending her back to Tartarus, and using his last bullet to slow the monster down, the two retreat back into Alabaster's house. Unfortunately, no sooner has Alabaster found the tome with the appropriate spell, than Lamia catches up and takes Claymore hostage. Knowing Alabaster won't use the spell with his life in danger, Claymore attacks Lamia and is subsequently killed. As his soul floats down the river Styx, he is pulled back to Earth by Hecate, who gives him a mist-formed body to inhabit, a sort of magical illusion person that Alabaster can create, to keep her son company in his exile. She explains that she separated Alabaster and Lamia upon Claymore's death, using the power of a sacrifice to magically bring his soul from Hades and separating her children. 
She tells him that Lamia will likely not interfere with Alabaster again, now that he knows how to permanently defeat her. In the mortal world, Alabaster uh, wakes up from the ensuing fight to find that Claymore's Mistform is there, and that they can now get on with whatever the hell they want to do together. <sighs> so, Jacqueline, what, what did you think of this story? This? Okay, this kind of fucked. It kind of fucks. Which is surprising, given who wrote it. Yeah, I... I mean, I guess I don't want to say I'm surprised, because, like, in a way, does this story not come from the original Percy Jackson fan? <laughs> this story was oh, written... you're right. This story was written by Haley Riordan. Mm-hmm. Uh, who... Who was, like... Basically... Basically, like... I don't I mean, like the the origin story of Percy Jackson is that like when Haley was a kid, uh, like Rick would read would read him like Greek myths and eventually would start making up stories about this kid named Percy Jackson, and like that's that's so this this story is written by Haley at sixteen and first of all it really does show that this was written by a sixteen year old second of all it's still very good, it's it's kind it's kind of manages to hit hit the sweet spot where like. The prose is clearly rough enough that, like, you can tell that a 16-year-old really did write this. It wasn't, like, just him throwing out a few ideas and then, like, Rick Ride and worked them into something, like, a bit more coherent. Uh, but also, like, despite the prose being rough, there are some really interesting ideas in here and some, like, genuinely effective, like, action and horror stuff. Completely agreed, because this is... This is like this is what you expect someone who I guess has been thinking about Percy Jackson for their entire life um <laughs> to just like to like think of like the questions that you would think of like hey what what does this like weird thing mean where does it come from very like just like very like very interesting interrogations of the canon that I just like don't think would occur to a lot of people yeah, definitely. And, you know, more specifically, some of these things did occur to us and we were asking about them. That is true. <laughs> specifically, we wanted more Greek god atrocities. That is, yes, that is very true. <laughs> um, this literally starts with the, with the atheist professor telling his class there is no heaven and being outwitted <laughs> by a child thing. <laughs> like, this, this literally has the, like, God's not dead, like, um, like that thing, that, like you know yeah which is weird because this fucking richard dawkins ass character then goes on to be kind of cool for the rest of the story yeah it's weird like the protagonist imagine if the if two epic debate bros went on an action <laughs> journey together that's kind of what this is a little bit it's a little bit that what god there's a lot to talk about here there's guns in this there's it's just like there's guns and violent there, okay the number one thing that makes me like this was written by a 16 year old uh -huh. um the spells mm -hmm. the, the spells are like mmo shit to me like this is like final fantasy spells i i mean the spells are just what the thing needs to do in latin so they're just fucking harry potter spells yeah well you're right except that they all start with like they all start with like a magical phrase that makes it feel like an activation oh, right. <laughs> in a way that is like 
it's very like World of Warcraft or something like that. Yeah, I see what you mean. It's video game. It's very video game. Um, also very weird that it's in like it's not in like a Kane Chronicles short story or something. True. Oh, this does have a lot of Kane Chronicles to it. Mm-hmm. What What do we think of the char- the main character here? I again for like for a sixteen year old writing their first published work. The degree to which Claymore is simultaneously a complete asshole and also still somehow kind of sympathetic and, like, you do root for him. Genuinely kind of impressive. Basically, yeah, like, he's he's a complex, like, not complex character, really. He's definitely just a piece of shit. Yeah, but he is, like, he's made sympathetic in that way. It was, mm-hmm. like... Uh, I heard someone say recently, like, if you want, if you create a really unlikable character, one of the best ways to make an audience invest in them is to just make them very competent, and like hype, and like I think that is kind of like a little bit of what's going on here, because oh, definitely, this guy is just fucking good at shit. Like he is, he's like, he shoots the monster, and then when she starts to reform, he just like starts like beating the shit out of her, and he's like, he shoots her, and that doesn't work. But it doesn't work to kill her. But he takes note of how long it takes her to regenerate so that he can then, like, rejig his strategy and just use the gun to slow her down. Yeah, yeah. It's, like, a scientific way of looking at a battle in a way that, like, we haven't really gotten this kind of perspective on monster fights in this series. I mean, we've never gotten this perspective before full stop because this is the first time we've seen a story from a mortal point of view. Very good point. Yeah, that is a. This is the first time, and it's fucking weird and horrifying to live in the Percy Jackson world. It it is a fucking horror story, straight up. Like I think I think the text like straight up mentions a Stephen King book at one point. Oh yes, yes. That I, I that was that was a funny bit because like you know that sixteen year olds across the world love Stephen King. Absolutely. And my God, the. The bit where, like, just... His name was, like, Bubbly or, like, Grumbly or, like, Burly... Burly Black? Burly Black, which is a very fun name. Uh, Just, like, burns... Th- like, first of all, before that even happens, he's just, like, paused. Like, everything mm-hmm. in the world just pauses around him uh, while Lamia, uh, like, interrogates him. That's fucking scary. And then the mm-hmm. entire cafe burning to the ground is also fucking terrifying. And, like, the, the fire is behind the mist, so Burly Black doesn't, like, know what's happening as he burns to death. He, like, doesn't seem to notice. Yeah. Oh my god, it's horrible. It's... The the way this whole, like, uh, like cafe fight with uh, Lamia and um, uh, Claymore plays out, it really reminds me of, like, um, Andor in a way yeah like the way that that show recontextualizes like stormtroopers and tie fighters who are usually like you know these cannon fodder things for like someone at the center of the story like a protagonist with a magic sword or some shit can deal with these fairly easily but if you're just a dude they're fucking terrifying yeah and that's that's the that's the claymore experience of dealing with a single low-level percy jackson monster it's horrible yeah, Percy could take Lamia out probably in Absolutely. a chapter. <laughs> like this is a random encounter in a Percy Jackson book. Definitely. But but to just a guy and like one demigod who's not like oh my god, Alabaster. 
uh, just like the saddest little kid in the world. <laughs> this is a Not- very sad little boy. Okay. The, the this presents so many interesting like answers I guess to like what our considerations about what the demigods who join Kronos are like. Mhm. Uh and the answer is c- exactly like all the other demigods. <laughs> they are confused and scared and don't like being pushed around by the gods and uh they got duped basically is the thing of it they got duped yeah, absolutely then they all got killed because they got duped they all got killed it's it's so interesting because last olympian tries to kind of uh, if i recall correctly it tries to hedge around the fact that there were demigods on the princess andromeda like percy grabs someone is like get everyone off the ship right before the bomb goes off yeah uh, and from what alabaster tells us that didn't do anything a bunch of them still died does he say that he was the only one who survived? He says he was one of the few who one survived the, few. the Princess Andromeda exploding. So it was like the kids that Percy rushed out, Luke, and fucking Alabaster. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone else, like, exploded or drowned. And Beckendorf suicide bombed the rest of them, yeah. Christ. <laughs> oh my god. Beckendorf's legacy is really being played with here in this book. <laughs> You, you're saying that he wasn't relevant anymore. Look at him. He looms large in this short story collection. <laughs> oh, you're right. No, this is a horrible position to be in. Because this really shows that this is a world where there is no, like... This is a mythical world with mythical consequences. Mm-hmm. Like, there is no, like, recuperation or reparation or, like restorative justice or anything like that this kid made a mistake and is going to have to suffer for it for the forever yeah I, this this kind of plays into something that we were talking about in a lost hero which was like the and son of neptune actually the way that the gods seemed to when they made that deal with percy at the end of that book they were absolutely like negotiating in the worst possible faith Yes. And didn't stick to anything they said. Like, they broke all their pledges about the minor gods. They didn't stick to their, like, claiming obligations at Camp Jupiter because they thought that Percy wouldn't find out. Uh, And now we find that, like, Percy tried to get that, like, amnesty put out to, like, the kids of the minor gods. And it looks like that happened for some of them. Uh, And then behind his back, the Olympians killed a fuckload of them also. Yeah. It's... It's brutal. It's abs... It's just horrible and again the gods must die (laughs) yeah yeah because like oh my god Uh, actually the god who is in this story hecate Mm -hmm. this is an interesting character to me Mm -hmm. mostly for the ending the ending is unhinged (laughs) i can we so the bit where she brings him back to not really back to life, but like sucks his consciousness up and puts him in like, okay. There's a specific line that is like, let me find this. Oh, here it is. Um, when Alabaster gets put, no, sorry. When Claymore, these fucking names, uh, (laughs) when Claymore gets put into the mist form body, um, and Alabaster says, Claymore, what happened? What are you doing here? Claymore gave Alabaster a smile that would last him the rest of his life. Uh, I 
I to that is such like a horrifying line to me. I mean, considering that uh, Claymore lives maybe like a m- eight more months to a year before Thanatos is released and the and like all the souls get reaped back. Oh my god. <laughs> no, well, specifically like putting this in parallel to this to, to the um to what Alabaster's quote unquote dad was like, which was mm-hmm. just this like unendingly smiling like affable robot of a thing. The line of like a smile oh, yeah. that will last him forever kind of makes it feel like there is a little like like Claymore will be there, but Clay but Claymore is also being put into this position of like you are a guardian now and you are going to like smile about it forever. Yeah, well, I didn't. I don't. I think I brought it up in the summaries, but like Alabaster has like a uh, mist form, quote unquote, like illusion dad that follows him around, so it doesn't look weird that he's on his own. Yeah. Uh, also, uh, you can tell what Haley Riordan was reading while writing this, uh, because to go back to Brandon Sanderson, uh, uh, he fucked up, and the editor must have missed it because um, at one point uh, he refers to the mist form as a mistborn. Oh my god. Which that's that's a Brandon Sanderson series. That's so fucking funny. <laughs> I oh, but no, the most unhinged Hecate thing. The entire time we see her, she is like in a like she is praying at like an mm-hmm. like a, um, and then okay, he stood about to walk out the doors of the church, <laughs> but then he stopped. Even if he was dead, the answer he was seeking was right in front of him. I have one more question to ask you, Hecate. He steeled his tongue just as Alabaster must have done in front of the audience at his lecture. If you yourself are a deity, who are you praying to? She paused for a moment, turned to him, and opened her brilliant green eyes. Then, as though the answer were obvious, she smiled and said, I hope you find out. What the fuck? Christian God confirmed? It kind of feels like, because this has the vibes of, like, atheist professor finds out Christian God is real. <laughs> this is insane. It, it is insane. Because <laughs> this is something the series has been, like, steadfastly agnostic about. Like, fr- from the get-go in Lightning Thief, Chiron is like, we, we don't talk about that. Do not, just don't. <laughs> Uh, and now we're, we're kind of bringing it back and implying that maybe Hecate is like praying to a higher power than the Olympians. Yeah, and that I mean that could come back. That could be like, oh, there is a maybe Hecate is praying to like one of the more like primeval, you know, like entities that exists out there, like your various fucking Uranuses or whatever. No, not that one. What's the <laughs> you, you know the various ones. Your Gaia's and your others. She's praying to Bez. Oh, well, that'd be funny if the Greek gods <laughs> worship the Egyptian gods. <laughs> so this, this to me very much does read as a Christian thing, though, in a way that is fascinating. It's just like very strange to read in a in a, in a I guess Haley Riordan short story. Uh huh. It's it's very strange. What the fuck was I gonna say? Oh yeah, I, the. While that stuff is unhinged, it does also um, play into some of the stuff that um, uh, Alabaster is saying that I found very interesting, where he 
when um when claymore is like asking him about the olympians he's like you know what's up with all these gods and stuff uh alabaster says something very interesting he says don't think of them as gods think of them as a sort of divine mafia oh yes i love this line i love this because it echoes um uh what dionysus was talking about in last olympian where he he seemed to come within like a few words of basically admitting to percy that like we are not like actual gods we are basically like cosmic parasites that feed off people's belief in us Uh uh-huh and that's that feels like something that's being echoed by what alabaster is saying here so i i don't know I'm, i'm interested to see if this idea comes up again pinging them specifically as divine mobsters is one of those things that i think is such a great observation Mm -hmm. um because that is exactly what they all like i've never thought about it but yeah that is exactly what they've always acted like it's it's such a great fucking framing of it all i want to talk about lamia before we wrap up because lamia is a great villain and really ties in to I mean, Lamia is is like interesting in a way that I was not expecting from her introduction, mm-hmm. and ties into sort of the greater, uh, I guess, canon, the greater mythology of the Percy Jackson series. Yeah, you in, you introduce a Percy Jackson monster named Miss Square Brackets Greek Monster. You don't expect any kind of like depth from them. No, I mean she calls to like um, fuck, who was it? Echidna who was just like on the the fucking San Luis arch. <laughs> yeah, that was Echidna. The mother of all monsters and she was just like a a, a lady with a dog. Mhm. And did not end up having a lot of relevance um but Lamia made it so all the Lamia made it so all the like monsters across the world could smell demigods. And this is yeah, this is kind of like do we need an answer for this necessarily? This I I, I like the story overall. This stuff's definitely the least interesting part of it to me. Uh huh. Yeah, we we didn't need to know. To me, it works a little bit better because it plays back into what we were talking about with like the gods are fucked. Like mm-hmm. they did something horrible to her, and like she did her revenge. Hmm. I can see that. Yeah. But it's. It's not the most interesting. Lumia ends up mostly just being kind of a fun horror monster, I guess. Mm-hmm. With the, the, the notable kind of um, backstory caveat of uh, Hera murdered all of her children. Yeah, yeah. Which, just Jesus fucking Christ. The amount of Greek god crimes that we've had in this book. It's really, really stacking up. It truly is. Uh, do you have much else to say about Son of Magic? Uh, I don't think so. It's genuinely, like, an impressive little story for a 16-year-old and, like, probably one of the more interesting ones in this collection. Completely agreed. I'm glad that we got... I'm glad that this is in here because I think it's it's nice to have a fresh perspective on the world. Yeah, definitely. Like, this, this feels like stuff that Rick was never going to, like, get into. It's stuff that he always tended to skirt around. Definitely. And there are bits that feel like fan fictiony in the way that it's written that's not mm. bad like the, it, it's just a it's an effect of both like i would say like sort of inexperience with writing uh and also like i don't know it, it's a different style than we're used to 
Yeah, I, I feel like on a base level, we do need to acknowledge that, like, when you tell a 16-year-old that they can write something to go into a universe that they like, and it'll be canon, uh, and what they don't write is their cool uh, demigod OC meeting Percy, and instead choose to write about, like, a, a random piece of shit and, like, a villain that was so insignificant they never even got a name. You know, that, that takes some restraint to, like, try and come up with an interesting story for that. Definitely. And I think the Percy Jackson world is better for it. Definitely. Yeah. Uh, well, before we wrap up, I I want to talk about some of the miscellaneous stuff. We've already talked about some of the games, but mm-hmm. there's also the portraits. Which I didn't know about because they're not in the UK edition for some reason. Uh, so what's going to happen now is that I'm going to send Jane the portraits <laughs> that are inside, the, the pictures of the characters. We talked about the horrifying art last time. Uh, when we did Demigod Files. Oh, there's a meowing cat. I can hear a cat. <laughs> she was trying to break down the door. She was like scratching <laughs> and like butting her head against it. She's dying. She's dying. So these are the portrait. We get one of Percy, one of Annabeth, one of Luke, one of Jason, one of Piper, and one of Leo. Oh, God. Yeah. Two of these, are uh, the, the, the Percy and the Annabeth ones are, uh, I think reused from Demigod Files. Yes. Uh, and they are both as horrific as they were back then. Oh, there's also one of Thalia. I forgot. The Thalia one's not that bad. The Thalia one's fine. Like, this is definitely like a punk rock 14-year-old or whatever. Uh-huh. I, I'm, I'm glad that they went for, like, the spiky hair that, like, kind of unfa- like kind of unfashionable, but, like, makes sense for her character. Makes sense just, for like... for a character with lightning powers, yeah. Yes. Uh, Luke looks like fucking Draco Malfoy, Harry Potter ass. He looks like Luke Game of Thrones. I don't know who that is, but... I, n- neither do I. It's my new OC that I just made up, which is Luke, but he's in Game <laughs> of Thrones and he looks like this. But, yeah, this is exactly what he looks like. Uh, Jason <laughs> is like... Jason is like a 13-year-old white boy uh, with, who is like... He just like looks like he plays soccer and that's basically it like he's... i mean judging from the perspective of this portrait jason is a gold coin possessed by a small white boy who plays soccer <laughs> yeah it's mostly it's mostly focusing on the coin which is it's cool it's a cool coin i guess uh leo is like is that image compression or does his face actually look like that no his face his face does kind of just look like that um awful this this is he looks like a weird little gremlin. Oh, it's not as bad. His eyes look kind bad. of he look, his eyes look kind of weird and puffy, like a, a weird little alien boy. But otherwise, in the, in the compressed one, yeah. Uh, and Piper's face isn't even in the fucking thing. It's just like a reflection on her dagger. Yeah, which I guess is thematic. Kind Why of? do the character portraits in these always suck? Rick Ryden hire a decent artist challenge. I guess it happened eventually. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's true. The Vario ones are good. Uh, why? Are they, wait, so why are these like Lost Hero era portraits of the characters when this came out after Sun, what, Sun and Neptune? I guess because that was the book that was out, and that's like this is these are the portraits of them then. Copyright Disney. Anyway, these suck. I'm glad they left them out of the UK edition. Actually, they would make the book actively worse. That's that's probably true. Apart from the various games and stuff, I think that's all there is to the Demigod Diaries. 
You didn't really talk about the cover. Wait, let me look if the cover's interesting at all. It's lit- mine is just literally a red background with the um, catechase. Oh, yeah, mine is just, the, like, I think there's there's one that's a bat, there's one that's a green background with the Aegis on it, and there's one that's a blue background with the Caduceus. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, this was the Demigod Diaries. Jane, what'd you think of this? I This book kind of fucking owns, which I really wasn't expecting it to. Yeah. It's 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 restored a little bit of my faith after the, the kicking it took with Son of Neptune. I kind of feel the same way. This is like one of my favorite books we've read for the show, I think. Mm-hmm. It's just enjoyable on its face. And I think as people who are like, at, at this point, fairly invested in this series, <laughs> uh, nearing, what are we, or like nearing 90 episodes, I think. Oh my God. Uh, like. Rolling up on two years. Christ. Christ alive. <laughs> It's good for us, and I have to imagine it's good for everyone else, too. I hope so. <laughs> I hope people like this one. Uh, but I think that might be all for us today. Yeah, just just a quick little episode. Just a short one. Yeah, just a short little episode of Chuck's Watch. Oh, no. <laughs> so next time, I think we're officially going to begin The Mark of Athena. No more swerves into bullshit side content. This is, This is the real shit. This is the real shit. We'll be there for a while. So (laughs) pack in, get everything you need. We're going on a boat trip. Yeah. Our intro and outro music is Super Mario Ocean by Space Pony. You can find that at OC Remix. You think Leo, because he's in command of a boat, is going to have like, of course I come fast, I have fish to catch hat. I hope so. Um, I thought you were going to say... Is, Sorry. I thought you were going to say, is he going to have control of the speaker system and play uh, Super Mario by Space Pony? God, that would rule. Uh, our cover art is by Vera at Innsmouth underscore end on Twitter. We are hosted by the Moonshot Podcast Network. Uh, you can find them at Moonshot Paws on Twitter and on Twitch, I think at Moon Moonshot Podcast. Uh, you can find them. And they have a lot of wonderful shows. Quick, Jane, name a wonderful show that's on the Moonshot Network. Uh, the Hyperfixation, where every week Roma brings on a guest to just talk about something cool and interesting that they've been into lately. That's right. And if you want to find us, you can go to twitter.com slash unwisegirls. There we have links to all of our stuff, like our personal Twitters and Tumblers and such. We're, we're on co-host now, too. Just that Unwise Girls um mm-hmm. we have our uh email a link to our discord server which you should join because it's fucking amazing in there the the greatest discord server in the world discord uh, discourse that's right no there's no discourse in there don't worry <laughs> there's no discourse uh and if you want to support us you can Go to your podcast app of choice, leave a five-star rating and review, tell a friend about it, or go to patreon.com slash unwisegirls, where for just a dollar a month, you can get the Discord role of Camp Counselor. For $3 a month, you can get the Discord role of Friend of Bacchus, as well as all of our bonus content. Yep. Last week on the bonus show, we got into, I think, uh, Act 6, Act 6, Intermission 4 of Homestuck. Uh, and if you would like to understand what any of that completely fractalized bullshit is, you should listen to the bonus show. We're really close to the end of Homestuck, and we've been covering this thing for a while. It's terrifying. 
Oh, also, I just wanted to make a quick historical note about co-host. Uh, last time I checked, I don't know if this is still true, um, uh, our post about the last Unwise Girls episode uh, was the only post in the Percy Jackson tag on that website. Yo. <laughs> <laughs> We're gonna really, really, really gonna like hit it with the with the with the co-host uh, group, I think. On Wise Girl Sweep. And for five dollars a month, you get the Discord role of Venus's Chosen, all of our bonus content, and a special thank you at the end of every episode. Speaking of which, this week we like to thank uh, Danny, Tana, Mercy, Veronica, friend, Bree, and Erica. Thank you, everyone. Thank you. And, as we always say, at the end of every single episode. See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. See you next week, Camp Half-Blood. Bye. Do you think we could, like, go back and busk for an extra ten minutes just to see if we can push this recording over the two-hour mark? (laughs) (laughs) You want to kill me. You're looking to murder me. (laughs) You're like, oh, it'd be funny if Jacqueline had two podcasts to edit. It's like two (laughs) podcasts in one. Wow, wouldn't that be funny? (laughs) We're ending this recording now. You know, Tony? What's up, Roma? I want to learn about a lot of shit. But, uh, well, Roma, you don't you don't have the time to learn all of the shit. There's too much shit. No. But you know what? What? You could learn more shit in very quick ways. Yeah? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you, got, you got a lot of friends, and your friends know shit. And your friends, <gasps> they could probably just yell shit at you in like 30 to 45 minute intervals, and then you can acquire an approximate knowledge of all of the shit, and then you could know all the things. But, but how? I don't know, probably like a podcast format. You know what? Yeah, let's do it. <laughs> you can listen to the Hyperfixation anywhere that you listen to podcasts, thanks to the Moonshot Network, and acquire your new Hyperfixation with me. 